Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. You know, many of our listeners, most of our listeners, have seen the Netflix original series, Making a Murderer. It's the story of Stephen Avery, a guy from the wrong side of the tracks whose family owned an auto salvage yard in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. It starts off in 1985 when Stephen Avery was wrongfully convicted of a sexual assault for which he was exonerated 18 years later when the DNA in the case was found to match another man and his alibis were proven to have been true all along. After his release in 2003, Avery filed a $36 million civil suit against Manitoba County, Wisconsin and several of its officials. Fast forward to 2005, Teresa Hallback, a photographer known to have been photographing cars on the Avery property, went missing. The handling of the investigation was quite controversial, to say the least, with issues of evidence tampering, not to mention the obvious conflict of interest in allowing Manitoba County to investigate the very same man who was suing them for $36 million. However, all of that aside, the most damning piece of evidence came in the form of a false confession from Avery's nephew, Brendan Dassey, a 16-year-old boy with no criminal record and serious mental challenges. Now, I'm honored to present the exclusive, the one and only interview that Brendan has ever given to anyone. Joining us is esteemed appellate attorney from the Center on Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University, my friend, Laura Nyrider. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Laura was kind enough to pick me up from the airport in Chicago, and we drove out to Oshkosh Correctional Facility for a pre-interview behind bars with Brendan. This left us with both time to talk and plenty to talk about. We have had a very eventful last 24 hours. Yeah, you know, it's been a trip I've done so many times for going on 12 years now. And, you know, it was a trip I hoped to never have to make again. But it's a trip that, you know what, we're going to keep on doing um, for as long as we have to do, right? Go out there, support him. And I'm just glad you had a chance to see who Brendan is, you know, to, to really spend some time with him and get to know him because he's a, he's a pretty incredible guy. Brendan is a very powerful example of a phenomenon that amazes me and keeps me going and drives me onward in this fight, which is that there is an absolute and total absence of malice. Mm. Anger, bitterness, self-pity. Like, I don't even think he knows what those emotions are. 
He's an incredible guy. I mean, you know, he was 16 when he went in. He's 29 years old now. And during that whole period of time of knowing him, you're right. I mean, Brendan is a sweet soul. You know, he's a, he's a simple guy. He's a funny guy. He's gentle. He's so gentle and kind. But he's simple um, but not shallow. And he, No, no, he's not. That's right. right. And his story is one of extreme juxtaposition, right? Because he went from being a very childlike young person, adolescent, into a very extreme grown-up situation. You got involved with Brendan's case at what stage? Well, let's start with Steve Drizzen, my colleague on the case, in 2007, about three months after Brendan was convicted at his trial, Steve was asked to handle Brendan's appeals going forward because of his expertise around interrogations and confessions. It's 2007, so this is long this is before long Make ago. a Murder or anybody. 100%. This is just yes. a, he was just another of the 2.2 million people in prison, anonymous, That's right. That's right. lost in the system. And Steve took the case. Now, this is 2007, okay? So at the time, Steve was teaching here at Northwestern Law School, and I was a third-year law student in Steve's class on wrongful convictions. Now, I didn't intend to practice criminal law. I actually had a career all mapped out for myself as a business lawyer. I was going to go do that. I had a job lined up after graduation. I knew nothing at a law firm here in town, here in Chicago. And, you know, I knew nothing about the criminal justice system. I knew nothing about wrongful convictions. I definitely knew nothing about false confessions. But I'd signed up for Steve's class, you know, on a whim, uh, try to do something off the beaten path. And a few months into that fall semester of my last year of law school, that's, uh, you know, Steve called me into his office. And he said, I've just gotten involved in a case from Wisconsin involving a 16-year-old boy with intellectual limitations who confessed to a crime that I don't think he committed. And he handed me the interrogation videos from Brendan Dassey's case, right? The same videos that years and years later ended up in making a murderer. And he told me to go watch them. So I went home, I sat down on my couch, I got out my laptop, because this is 2007, I pop in these DVDs, and I, I watched them all, right? From start to finish. The confession tapes. Yeah. And my heart broke. And I knew that this is it, this is what I had to do, was, you know, fight for people like Brendan. So, um, you know, no more... No more business law for me. I came back to Northwestern after graduating, and for the last 12 years, I've been building with Steve the Center on Wrongful Convictions, where we represent Brendan and other kids just like him. So for the people who may not have seen Making a Murder, and there are those who listen to our show who haven't seen it yet, what was it? What was the moment? What was it about those tapes? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I actually remember the moment, right? It's So this is a videotape of the entire interrogation, right? He was actually questioned four times over 48 hours, and it was only the last interrogation that produced the uh, the confession, you know, which I, which I say in quotation marks. Um, but this is an interrogation where they're asking Brendan about murder, right? This is a murder case. So they want to ask him about, you know, how was the victim in this case? How was Teresa Halbach killed, right? And, and these police going into the interrogation, they know, or they think they know based on their own investigation, that she had been shot in the head. So they're waiting for Brendan to describe shooting somebody in the head, right? So they ask him, you know, Brendan, how did you guys, you know, how did, how did you kill Teresa Halbach? And he says, we choked her. We choked her. Well, that's, that's not right. So they say to him, okay, um, you know, what else, Brendan? What else did you do to her? What else did he do to her? We know something else was done. We stabbed her. Okay, you stabbed her. Still not right. So they actually start... Not, not even close. Not even close. So, th- so they start dropping him hints, right? They say, come on, Brendan, something with the head. Something with the head. Uh, what else did you guys do to her? And, and Brendan says, we punched her. That he punched her. And that's still not right. So it's like Brendan's completely at sea. And he says, you know, we... We cut off her hair? Yeah, he cut off her hair. And his voice goes up like that, like he's asking a question. And no, 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 Brendan, come on. What else? What else? Something with the head. What else? What else? What else was done to her head? And this goes on and on and on. And finally, Brendan, you know, he must get exhausted. And he just says, That's all I can remember. And uh, the officers at that point say to him, Brendan, I'm just going to come out and ask you. All right, I'm just going to come out and ask you who shot her in the head. And, you know, Brendan says, well, that was, that was my uncle, Stephen. He did. And then, you know, 
comes one of the most heartbreaking moments of the entire interrogation, because they say to him, Brendan, why didn't you just tell us that? Why didn't you tell us that? And he says... Because I couldn't think of it. Because I couldn't think of it. Right? He was guessing. Yeah. So let's say you're not convinced, the way I am, that Brendan was guessing. Let's say for a moment that the story was true, that this bloody attack occurred in Stephen Avery's bedroom the way that Brendan's confession claimed that it did. You'd expect that bedroom and that bed to be covered with forensic evidence. Blood from a stabbing and throat cutting. Hair from when her hair was supposedly cut. I mean, think about how hard it is to clean up hair. And of course, after Brendan gave his confession, the police went back to Stephen Avery's bedroom, and they searched it for evidence to corroborate the confession. They searched the bed. They searched the bedding, the mattress, the headboard, the bed frame. They looked at the carpet underneath the bed. They pulled that carpet back and looked underneath the carpet. They even took the paneling off the walls in the bedroom, searching for a single molecule of Teresa Halbach's DNA or Brendan Dassey's DNA. And they found nothing. This story didn't happen. It's made up. The day after our face-to-face meeting at Oshkosh Correctional, we did our formal interview with Brendan over the phone from Laura's office at Northwestern University. Oshkosh Correctional, please hold. Hey, Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Hi. It seems like only yesterday that I saw you because it was only yesterday. Yeah. And it was great to meet you. I, you know, Laura and I had a long ride back to Chicago, and obviously we talked about you a lot and things that we uh, are hoping to do to make a difference for you and with you. I mean... We'll wait for the announcement to go by. You went through an ordeal that even those of us that have seen the show and have seen on video parts of what happened. Obviously, we couldn't see the whole thing. But none of us can understand what it would be like to be in your shoes. You know, to be in this uh, impossible situation of being a really a child. At 16, you're still a child. You're not a grown man. Yeah. And to, to be going through this interrogation where you have grown men who are interrogating you for days uh, without a parent, without a lawyer, without anyone to help you. I mean, were you scared or were you just thought maybe if you just told the truth, everything would be fine? Or What was your thought process at that point? Well, I just wanted it all over with, so I said whatever they wanted to hear, you know. Most people grow up, as I did, with believing that the law enforcement are out to help us. Right? There are people you call when you need help. Did you have that same idea when you went in there? Yeah, I I thought maybe anything I can do to help them, you know, I would. So was there a point when you were in that horrible room where you started to worry about the outcome or that you thought that these men may have been not as well-intentioned as you originally thought? Yeah, when they started saying that... uh, that I wasn't telling the truth and that uh, that my story didn't fit the facts that they had, that's when I started getting worried. Well, there's a very good reason your story didn't fit the facts because you didn't know the facts. Yeah. So, Brendan, you remember there was a time when the interrogators left the room for a few minutes and your mom came back into the room. Yeah. You had a whole life before you could. Did you? Huh? Not really. What do you mean, not really? Do you to my head? Huh? What do you mean by that? So, was that the first time you had seen your mom since they had started interrogating you? Yeah, it is. 
Okay, so what was it like to see her after being alone with those interrogators for such a long time? I felt that I could be safe and I could tell her the truth, you know, that they got into my head. They got me to say whatever they wanted. Do you think either before, during, or after that the detectives conducting that interrogation knew or realized that he was actually innocent? You know, it's a, it's a very good question, and it's something I've asked myself, right, over and over again. Um, this is just my opinion, but I think that they were worried that something had gone wrong. Brendan's already, you know, been in the box for about three and a half hours. He's adopted their their theories that he committed rape and murder. And the whole thing, and the story is over, it's done, it's locked. And they let her into the room, and the cameras are still rolling in the room, right? And they leave the two of them alone. You know, it's my theory that they were outside, watching this all-on-closed-circuit camera, hoping that Brendan was going to make more admissions to his mother. Instead, he recants. One of the clearest recantations I've ever heard. Right, Brendan using his own words, his own ability to express himself, to tell his mom what he had just been through. They got to my head. And at that moment, the officers come barging back through that door into the interrogation room. And Brendan doesn't say another word. Yeah, I'm getting the chills. I mean, as a parent, it's just so heartbreaking. And look, I always say there are a lot of very good people in our criminal justice system. But the ones who do the types of things that were done to Brendan, I mean, there's a lot of villains in this story, right? Some unbelievable characters in this story. Yeah, and so the system that was designed, in theory, to protect the innocent, and in this case to protect Brendan, failed at every level. Right. I mean, you Starting in the interrogation room. That's right. Starting with the fact that they targeted him in the first place. Right. I don't really understand. I mean, I I have a theory in my own head about why they may have done that, and maybe we'll never know, but it seems like, to me, they wanted to build a stronger case against Stephen. No doubt about it. And so they went for the weakest link they could find, right? No doubt about it. That's exactly right. Small community. They knew that Brendan was... A simple person. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the things about Brendan, of course, he's got disabilities. Everybody knows that. But his disabilities in particular are clustered around speech, the way he speaks, the way he hears language, the way he processes words, and the way he uses his own words, right? So, you know, this is not a, a person who can sort of weave sophisticated uh, stories or, or lies or things like that. And, of course, these are disabilities that are at the center of an interrogation, right? This sort of sophisticated level of conversation, talking about, you know, what could happen to him if he if he didn't confess, because there was a threat in this case. What would happen to him if he didn't start adopting the story that was being fed to him? What was going to happen, on the other hand, if he, if he did agree to go along with the story? You know, this is a really hard situation for someone like Brendan, 16, special education student in Wisconsin public schools. A hard situation for him to navigate. He did the best he could. For as long as he could. For as long as he could. Four times over 48 hours, these officers questioned him. and um, Yeah, this should have been a first-round knockout. Oh, my God. He, he held up uh, as long as he could. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. We've been investigating this a long time. We already know what happened. It'll be a lot easier on you, darling. If you lie about it, that's going to be a problem. I'm your friend. I'm potentially. It's unfair. Lay some crap on you. An honest person wants to get a better deal out of everything. I've got to believe on that one. I don't believe in you. I can't go to the bank. You can't make any promises, but we'll stand behind you. Your mom said you'd be honest with you. She's behind you 100% no matter what happens. She thinks you know more to her. You're in your corner. We already know what happened. Don't tell us exactly. Don't lie. What would you tell people when they're sitting in that jury box and they're listening to incredible testimony, videotapes yes. of someone going, yeah, I did it. Yeah. So what should people watch? Because some confessions are true. Of course some confessions are true. Those are the ones we want, right? It's, you know, we got to screen out the false confessions. So what do they look for? Okay, so the big message, right? A confession is just a piece of evidence like any other piece of evidence, right? Sometimes it can be misleading. And you question it and you examine it in the same way that you'd ask, you know, critical questions, intelligent questions about any other piece of evidence, right? Can I trust what this person is saying? So when you see a confession like Brendan Dassey's, where somebody is getting the facts of the crime wrong, unless they're being told the right answer, that's a red flag, right? It happens throughout Brendan's interrogation, details large and small he can't come up with. He's guessing and he, and he guesses wrong, actually, until he gets straightened out by the officers, not just about how Teresa Halbach was killed, but he, he can't decide if, if her shirt was black or white, right? He, he doesn't know what the, what the right answer is. Because um, he never met her. Because he never saw her. That's right. He can't decide if the fire was started at 3 p.m. or later on in the evening after dark, right? I mean, he doesn't know these things. He's just guessing all over the place. And you see this repeatedly throughout false confession cases, because what you have in those cases are people who had nothing to do with the crime trying to say something that sounds believable to satisfy their interrogators. Almost everybody I've ever met says the same thing. I am not that guy. I'm smart. I'm capable. I'm strong. I'm not confessing to a crime I didn't commit. Everybody thinks this, right? Well, that's for other people, right? That's for, you know, maybe mentally impaired people. That's for children, maybe. So what you have to understand is that interrogation is a carefully orchestrated set of psychological tactics that are designed to get people off their belief in their own innocence and designed to actually make them believe that it will help them, that it will improve their situation, that it will benefit them to say they did these things that the officers think, right? These are incredibly powerful techniques and every single one of us has a breaking point and these techniques are designed to find it so how does this work right so the way this basically works interrogation is generally a two-stage process the first half is all about confrontation 
and reducing you down to hopelessness, right? We know you did this. I've got so much evidence against you. No one is going to believe you when you say you're innocent, right? I've got three people in the room next door who picked you out of a lineup. I've got your DNA on the scene. I've got your fingerprints on the gun. Even if none of that is true, by the way. Because they're allowed to lie. It's perfectly legal for police to lie. That's right. Not in the UK. That's right. But here it's perfectly legal for the police to lie during interrogations. So they bring you down to hopelessness, right? I'm not going to listen to you say you're innocent. You're just making it worse off for yourself. No one's going to believe you. You're caught. You're trapped. You're screwed. You've got nothing. And then when you reach that point of hopelessness, that's when they offer you an out, right? A life raft. Confession. It's going to help you if you confess. Easy on you. We'll go easy on we'll you. you know, you. I'll go talk to the judge, right? I'll see what I can do for you. You've, things are going to be so much better for you. You've got a whole life to live in front of you. You're just a kid. People are going to understand that over and over. But I need to hear the story from you, right? People are going to understand that you deserve help if you cooperate. That's how it works, right? These techniques are incredibly good at getting true confessions, but they are so potent that they also get false confessions. And this, actually, we're sitting here in Chicago, which is where this was originated, right? The Reed Technique. The Reed Technique. Actually, even better than that, it's originated here out of the work of a professor at Northwestern Law School. Oh, my God. Back in the 1940s, right? So before these... Full circle. That's right. Before these psychological techniques were developed, interrogations were physical, right? The third degree, people were beaten or hung out of windows, right? This, This is how it was done. And then the 40s, these people who at the time were thought of as progressive reformers come along and say, you know what, let's stop physically abusing people. Let's do this, these psychological techniques instead. Those techniques that were developed here at Northwestern, here in Chicago back in the 1940s, are still being used today. Talk about outdated, even though the DNA revolution, which has been in full swing now for 25 years, has proven time and again that these outdated techniques are far too capable of coercing false confessions. The crazy thing is, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the lawyer in this equation, but had Brendan said what I advise people listening to the show, or anybody who asks me anywhere, if you're picked up Mm. for a crime that you didn't commit, and you're brought to the station, and you're placed in this situation, and you say to yourself, well, I don't want to end up like Brendan, what do you do? I want a lawyer. That's it. That's, That's what, what you say, right. right? I want a lawyer. That stops the interrogation, or it should stop the interrogation. That's your constitutional right to say that. What's interesting, of course, you know, the Miranda rights are read usually at the beginning of interrogations. Um, 85% of people waive their Miranda rights. So, I mean, a huge number of people do, right? We think of these as these important safeguards, and everybody's out there asserting their rights to lawyers and their right to be silent and all these. No, everybody waives these rights. And, you know, we've all been in that situation, right, where you get pulled over and you think you can talk your way out of it. People waive these rights. Uh, They don't understand how these rights can help them, especially kids, right? What does it mean to a kid? What does it mean to Brendan Dassey that he can have a lawyer in the room, that his admissions will be used against him in court? He doesn't know what a lawyer does. He doesn't understand the ways in which a lawyer could help him or improve his situation or stop this from happening to him. But yeah, huge numbers of people waive those rights. And it's actually, the numbers are even greater when we're talking about innocent people. Sure. Right? Because you figure, well, I've if got I just nothing tell to the hide. truth, I go home. Right. Nothing to hide. Of course I'll talk to you. Right. right. And you may also be sitting there thinking, well, if it's going to take a long time for a lawyer to get here, I don't exactly. want to wait. I have things to do. Let me just clear this up. No right. problem. No. I'll no, be out of here. No, no, no. We're begging you. This right. is Jason and Laura personally begging you. If you're in that situation, there's only four words you need. I want a lawyer. Right. Part of the process that landed Brendan in this situation, which was his own team. Len Kaczynski. Can you tell us what that was like? I mean, being represented by this guy? Um, when I first met him, I knew that uh, he didn't have my best interest in, in mind because he was always trying to get me to take a plea deal or something. So you knew right away. I mean, yeah. Brendan, that, a lot of credit to you because, you know, mo- many people might not have picked up on that so quickly because people go into that situation, they think, well, this is my lawyer. He's going to be protecting me and defending me. Um, yeah. So you knew right away. But then as things progressed, I mean, did you feel betrayed or did you feel hopeful that maybe he was going to turn it around and actually do his job? 
No, especially since that when I saw him on TV with Nancy Grace, you know, and he more or less told her that he believes that I'm guilty. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of things wrong with that whole scenario. I mean, did you mention that name Nancy Grace and my, you know, yeah. my skin crawls? Um, and that, yeah, the fact that he went on there with her is, is horrible. And then you had this investigator who was supposed to be uh, helping you. And, yeah. And can you talk about that a little bit? What do you want to know? Well, when he was asking you to drop pictures and all these other things, and he was sort of, you know, badgering you like, Brendan, you did this. Yeah. What about this investigator? Well, at first I thought maybe he would try to help me, you know, but then when he was trying to get me to more or less give another confession, you know, I knew right then and there that he wasn't on my side either. So basically you had your family and and that was pretty much it, but they're not lawyers and they're not investigators. They're just no. reg- just regular people, right? Yeah. How did being represented or misrepresented by Len and, and the things that he did, how did that make you feel? It made me feel betrayed and that I couldn't really trust lawyers either. But now I can. What an insane set of twists and turns. Yeah. We've represented Brendan Dassey through the state court appeal system, where the, the state courts in Wisconsin were not particularly bothered by what they saw in that interrogation video, but we, we you know sort of expected that. And then we took his case, as people who watched Making a Murderer will remember, we took his case to the federal court system, right? The way this basically works is you can go to federal court and you can say, hey, federal court, will you review the way in which the Wisconsin state courts protected Brendan's rights. So that's what we did. We went to the federal courts. We filed what's called a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, asking the federal court to take a look at how the state courts handled Brendan's case. But, but there is a trick here. Okay. So let's say you go into federal court and you prove to them beyond the shadow of a doubt, right, that the state court was wrong in how it handled Brendan's case. You lose. In order to win in federal court, you have to prove not only that the state court was wrong in how it handled Brendan's case, Mm -hmm. but that it was so unreasonably wrong that no other judge in America could possibly have ruled the same way, right? That's literally the legal standard, thanks to the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act signed into law in 1996, which keeps, you know a lot of innocent prisoners like Brendan Dassey from accessing this kind of relief in the federal courts. So that's the needle that you have to thread in federal court. So we filed our petition, you know, we, we made these arguments. Yes, this is, it's not just wrong. It's, it's unreasonably wrong. No one else would rule this way. And we sat and waited months and months and months for a decision. And we got our decision. You know, we'd, we'd won after years of representing Brendan, we'd won in the federal district court, you know, which was a, a moment of enormous joy as you can imagine. But we knew, because we've pushed the boulder up the hill a lot of times before, we knew that that was just round one, that the state had every right to appeal, that it was going to appeal this case. And it did, right? At the, at the 11th hour. That's, yeah. that's right, that's right. Um, and so when we found out that they were going to appeal, we said, you know what, that is your right. We can't stop you from doing that. But we want Brendan out, right? We want him home. This is right around Thanksgiving. Um, we want him home for the holidays while you guys do your thing. So we asked the court to release Brendan during the appeals. And uh, you know, we made all of our arguments. Here's where he's going to go live. He's going to be in a protected environment. We have a social worker on the space, you know, working on the case, identifying resources, supports for him outside. And the court said, okay, yeah, let's let Brendan go home. Right? He's not a danger to this community. I believe in him. I can see he's it's going to be fine. So let's release him. And we had an order directing the state of Wisconsin to release Brendan Dassey and came within about 12 hours of getting Brendan out before the state of Wisconsin asked the appeals court to block that order. And they did. So, you know, okay. um, We go forward with the appeal. The state files its briefs. We file our briefs. We argue it out in court before the appeals court, the federal appeals court. And again, right, we're trying to thread the eye of the needle here. We wait and wait and wait for our verdict, for our decision. And we'd won again, right? Two to one. This was in front of three judges. We'd won two to one. 
which is another moment of great joy mm-hmm. and celebration. Enough, yeah. Two to one, I'll take it. Except, please notice that as we studied this decision, this two to one decision, there was suddenly another judge in America who would have ruled to keep Brendan Dassey still right. in prison, right? Hmm. And the more we read that dissenting judge's opinion, we realized that it read like an open invitation for the state of Wisconsin to try this very rare legal maneuver, a rehearing on bonk where you throw out the appeal and redo it in front of the full court. And that's exactly what they did. We argued that case and um, lost by a single vote, four to three. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh, Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Steve and I are not uh, not done fighting for Brendan, and the world isn't either, and the Wisconsinites aren't either, right? So uh, today we have filed a petition with the governor of Wisconsin asking that he 
grant Brendan clemency, that he release Brendan Dassey from prison. He's the only person in the world with the power to do that, Governor Tony Evers. We hear so much from people in state, out of state, right? People from all over, all four corners of Wisconsin, Madison, Milwaukee, but up in Superior, up in Green Bay, out in Eau Claire, right? La Crosse. I get these messages constantly from people who, who just think it's time for Brennan to come home. You know, it's past time. And, you know, we're, we're honored to be in a position where we can hopefully show the governor it's the right time to do this. Yes, and the good news is that by all accounts, this governor is a reasonable man. He's had experience. Um, he's visited a juvenile detention facility. It's one of the first things he did after That's right. office. That's right. He did. Um, and he so comes from the education system. You know, he, he was the head of the Wisconsin Board of Education before he assumed the governor's office. So this is somebody who understands, you know, Brendan was a 10th grader in the public school special education system, right? That's who he was. In many ways, it's still who he is. Brendan, um, you know, one of the things I was personally so um, struck by was when we spoke yesterday about your dreams uh, for after you get out um, and what you want to do in the world. Do you mind sort of talking about that a little bit? I mean, like uh, getting into making and playing video games? (laughs) Well, yeah, and hopefully getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we. Oh, I think it was Laura that asked you if you had a superpower. What would it That's be? That's right. That's always one of my favorite questions to ask Brendan. I would want to have the power to heal illnesses and diseases all over the world. And where do you think that comes from? Like, I mean, it's a great superpower. I'd like to have it too. But of all the things, why do you think that one is the one that came to your mind? Well, I just like helping people, so I wanted to help other people in the world. I mean, look, there's a lot of people that want to help you, too, and it's amazing. We talked about yesterday how many letters you get. Do you figure you've gotten letters from every state in the country by now, all 50 states? It's got to be close. Uh Uh-huh. You know, Brendan, why don't you tell them some of the countries that people have sent you letters from? Do you remember some of the countries? Uh, Singapore, England, Ireland, uh, Iceland, South America, Canada, uh, Hawaii, New Zealand, too. Yeah, and even, even Australia, right? Yeah, Australia. It's yeah. amazing. And also some from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. That's great. So there's tens of millions of people now all over the world, as you know, who have watched Making a Murderer, have learned about your story. Do you want to see the show when you get out? Are you interested? I might. I don't know if I can, though. Yeah. You mean it might be hard to watch? Yeah. You know, more or less because I lived it, so why would I want to watch it again? Really understandable. After everything you've been through and all the twists and turns and the freedom being sort of, you know, yanked away from you twice, really. Yeah. um, What was that like? Your bags were packed, right? You're ready to go home, and then they pulled the rug out from under you. I mean, I would think that would make somebody crazy. Yeah, I was a little depressed, you know, and called my mom that night and... You know, I was I was upset, you know, and so she was she, you know, she thought I was going to be coming home, you know, and I was willing to give up all my stu- my stuff, you know, and just walk out the doors with nothing. Right. So you were going to give it to some of the other guys in there, or what? either that or or just tell the prison that they can keep it. Right. Well, you weren't going to need it anymore. Um, yeah. What helped you sort of get through this, Brendan, as this was all happening to you? Where did you find your strength? Uh, Mostly having my family support me and have my back. Yeah. Especially your mom, right? Yeah. Today's visiting day, right? Yeah, I'll be getting a visit from my mom tonight. Mm Mm-hmm. It means everything, you know, to have a family that loves and supports me no matter what. And uh, they always have my back, you know. Yeah, and it really is heartening to know that so many people care and still care. And what would you tell people that want to get involved, that that have seen your story, who didn't really have any idea of what goes on in our justice system, but now they do? Is there anything particular that you could advise someone? Um, just keep fighting for me and uh, keep showing your love and support. And then there's a lot of ways to do that, and going to, you know, innocenceproject.org is a good place to start. 
Laura, are there other places people can go to learn more about this case and to follow your progress and the progress in getting Brendan home? Absolutely. Folks can go to CWCY.org. That's the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth. You can learn a lot more about Brendan's case, read his legal papers, and follow developments as they happen. And do you have social media yourself that we can uh, tag you in here? Because we want to have people follow you and your progress, not only on Brendan's case, but also on all the other amazing work that you're doing. I do. I do. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, both at Laura Nyrider. That's easy. That's at Laura Nyrider. That's right. And now, as regular listeners of the show know, it's time for the best part of the show. Closing arguments where I get to just kick back in my chair, turn my microphone off. First of all, thank you again for taking the time to share your your thoughts and your perspective and your spirit with me and with our audience. And of course, thank you, Laura, for uh, arranging this and for being such a passionate, dedicated, obsessive justice fighter um, and for being on the show. So Laura, first, thank you for being here. Thanks for giving this opportunity to let the world hear who Brendan Dassey is. You know, there have been so many people out there who watched Making a Murderer and were moved, disturbed by Brendan's story and who've reached out to us to ask what they can do to help Brendan. There's something really easy you can do. Maybe this upcoming weekend, you find yourself an extra 10 minutes of time. Think about sending him a letter, right? These letters don't have to be long. They don't have to be powerful, but just tell him, you know, keep your head high. I believe in you, right? We're fighting for you. It'll happen for you. These letters are such a small gesture on the part of every one of us, but they sustain him, right? They give him hope every day. And that gives us the hope we need to keep on fighting. So find his address on the Wisconsin Department of Corrections website. He's in the Oshkosh Correctional Institution. Reach out to him. Let him know he's got friends all over the world who believe in him. If you want to get involved in other ways, you can do that. You can educate yourself. There are a lot of other books, films, TV shows about wrongful conviction, right? Brendan is not the only one. Get out there. Watch When They See Us, right? Watch the Paradise Lost series about the West Memphis Three or West of Memphis. Uh, Watch um, Murder on a Sunday Morning, right? Watch the confession tapes. You can see incredible shows, read incredible books about this happening over and over, some of which we've mentioned today. And you can get out there. Of course, you can support organizations like the Center on Wrongful Convictions or the Innocence Project or a lot of other incredible organizations that do this work. But most importantly, right, don't stop saying Brendan Dassey's name. Get out there on social media. Remember him. Keep insisting that the people with power in this system do justice for Brendan. Write letters to the governor of Wisconsin. Tell him what you see. When you see Brendan on TV, tell him what you hear when you hear Brendan on a podcast like this, especially if you live in Wisconsin. Tell him you want Brendan home. That's the difference that you can make. It's a huge difference. We rely on people like you to light the way, to show the path for doing the right thing here. So thank you to everybody who's written to Brendan. Keep doing it. Keep showing your support. Let's get him home together. And Brendan, um, thank you again for you know letting me come see you and for spending time on, on the air with us today. Um, and now I get to leave it open for you to say whatever you want as we close the show. Um, I don't know what to say. Um, I love Pokemon, and uh, my favorite Pokemon is Mew. But uh, there's a new one coming out called El Creamy that I really like. And uh, hopefully I get to see some of the more new ones coming out pretty soon.
Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.